You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where, very often, life is so strange. smashing episode of just one of the guys a greenlander podcast pumpkin smashing only in the effect that i'm playing the smashing pumpkins at the beginning of the show and probably a little bit because well this episode's going to go up right after halloween and i'm certain there's going to be a bunch of excess pumpkins hanging around regardless this is an internet radio show covering the greenlander comic books from cover date june 1990 until cover date november 2004 with a special emphasis on the characters of guy gardner and kyle rayner my favorite, Green Lanterns, who unfortunately you really can't get costumes for around Halloween, which is disappointing, but there you go. Today we're going to be covering two comics, obviously, Green Lantern number 38, which deals uh, with a bit of the strange. Not that kind of strange in, like, Hal Jordan getting it on with Aresia, even though she's technically only 13. No, the kind of strange as in Adam Strange the hero of the planet Ron, or Ran, or whatever. Plus, we have the welcome return of you-minded girlfriend, well, ex-girlfriend to Hal Jordan, Ann Coulter. Wait, no, I'm sorry, she just looks like Ann Coulter. It's actually Olivia Reynolds. And unfortunately, this time around, she doesn't look so much like Ann Coulter. Plus, she's sporting some uh, clothing I think Ann Coulter would probably be kind of embarrassed to be wearing. Although... Knowing Ann Coulter embarrassment might not be a big thing for her. And in the second segment of the show, we're going to be covering Guy Gardner number 7, where Guy finally has it out with Goldface and his... <sighs> alien goons of Jocasta, Repo, and Piston. Not the greatest villains, but they pose a threat to him anyway, and Guy actually impresses Hal in the end. So, there's something you thought you'd never happen that would never happen in the comic. But before we get to those comics, let's go ahead and play a few promos for some shows that I love, and after that, we'll come back and we'll start with Green Lantern number 38. So, stay tuned, folks. 
Why, hello there, lovely ladies. May I just say that you look quite beautiful in your matching Slave Leia metal bikinis? You have permission to come aboard my den of nerd erotica. Some people would call it my mom's garage. I call it 10.1 forward. Can I interest you in a death stick? Nope. I was just kidding. Have a shot of trying it. Once you get loosened up, we can play a friendly game of strip fizzbin. Let me loosen that strap. Hey suckers, Maury Clawhammer here, okay? You want your freaking Star Wars? I got your Star Wars right here! What about the Star Trek? You like that shit too, right? Right? That's what I thought. Well, we got that and we got more freaking comics than you can read in your entire miserable goddamn life. Hey, there's even a girl who talks about unicorns and goddamn Harry Potter and M... 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 Them goddamn Oriental cartoons with the big eyes. So you get your ass over to the Two True Freaks podcast at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. That's spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, alright? Alright? Good. You can get there on the internets and choose from hundreds of quality Two True Freaks podcasts. And would it kill you to buy a goddamn t-shirt? Remember, Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures falling from the sky, speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The New 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. And we're back. It always sounds weird when I say we're back because it's only me and my computer room recording by myself and 
Huh? The voices in my head keep me company. Right voices in my head? You've got it, buddy. Thanks a lot. Well, let's go ahead and check the, uh, just one of the guys' mailbag and see what kind of letters we have. And I think this time around we've actually got some. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter comes from awesome podcaster and awesome guy all around, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. Luke writes in saying, Sean, this Guy Gardner solo book sounds hilarious. And a silent issue of nothing but fighting, that's just ballsy enough to work. And the bad guys being named Boom, Thoom, and Buck Fifty just cracks me up every time. The Joe Staten art is something which I would have balked at when it first came out for being a little bit too cartoony, even though it was, and I still am, a huge fan of Alan Davis, who has his cartooning te- tendencies. Yeah, I, I remember Alan Davis uh, was doing the art on the Excalibur books for a long time over in the X titles. I wasn't reading the Excalibur books, but Alan Davis seems like a perfect fit if being cartoony, for that group of characters, especially Captain Britain and Nightcrawler. A cartoony aspect would really work well with a Nightcrawler, I would think. Unfortunately, I don't have that much experience with Alan Davis, but I'll take uh, Luke's word for it. Uh, he continues on saying, But looking at, looking at it now and hearing your summaries of the issues, the art seems like a perfect fit. Guy's story is just a little absurd and a little outrageous and a little over the top. Staten is a good match for this tone. I definitely need to pick up some of these early ones next time I go back issue hunting. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, these issues, you can probably find them for relatively cheap. If you look around, they might be in dollar bins or 50 cent bins around. Uh, I found one recently, and living here in Oklahoma, we don't have that much of a back issue log as places probably on the East Coast would have. So I found one... Uh, for just two bucks uh, back issue, and it was in really good quality. So, yeah, definitely go pick them up or seek them out in whatever means you uh, feel comfortable with seeking them out in. Luke continues, A long way down the road, Guy Gardner crosses over with Hawkman. I'd love to do a guest spot for that story. Well, consider it done, Luke. I know it's not until we get to the uh, Guy Gardner warrior portion of it where Guy stops being a ring wielder and starts being a sort of what I determined with uh, Thomas DJ to be a sort of flesh T-1000, I will definitely have you on for that storyline. It'll be good fun. Again, going back to the email, uh, Luke says, The third law story sounds like the kind of comics I like best. Big stories that are contained entirely in their own pages, but are not afraid to use the larger universe for continuity. We're getting close onto the period when I started reading Green Lantern back in the day, so these stories hold a lot of interest for me. Yeah, the third law was the was like you said the kind of story that is a large could be brought out to encompass the entire DC universe because they're facing essentially by the end of it the villain that sort of sort of started the crisis, Krona. And they could have incorporated the Justice League into it and Superman and all that, but they kept it comprised to the Green Lantern book entirely. And I like that. I really would have wished they could have done the same with modern comics, like Blackest Night. That would have worked great in just the Green Lantern comics, but unfortunately it spilled out in the other stuff and kind of got watered down a bit. Another good example in Green Lantern was probably the uh, 
the Yellow Lantern storyline that they did, that Jeff Johns did prior to the uh, Blackest Night thing. But getting back to Luke's email, he says, I want to address the iTunes review that you got from the listener claiming that you were a conservative nutcase calling Jon Stewart an angry black man. Okay, well, here's where it's going to get real, folks. First off, I remember that even though you've only mentioned your political leanings in passing, to a lot of people in this country, the mere mentioning of the fact that you may lean to the right is enough for them to say that you are quote-unquote hard right or quote-unquote fringe right and some other, or some other nonsense. So I wouldn't sweat it. And if anyone out there is mad about what I'm saying, you can direct it to me over at Forum for Geeks or my own show and not bother Sean with it because I said it, not him. Well, Luke, Really, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the kind offer, but it's okay. Uh, you know, I kind of to to be honest, when I got the review initially, I was kind of upset, and I went back and listened to the episode and tried to figure out what I did. And I could see how you might have taken what I said in the episode to be sort of conservative, but I don't think I came out with a you know, sort of Michael Savage type screed where I just completely ranted against the system. I do admit that I lean kind of conservative, but I try not to keep it in the uh, in the show. Uh, I try and keep the show focused on the comics and try and, you know, uh, just have fun with it. But I, I do agree with you. A lot of times you mentioned that you're conservative and the general public thinks that you believe that Obama's not really an American citizen and Nancy Pelosi is a radical socialist intent on bringing down the country. It's not true, and I hate the stereotypes on both sides. If I'm going to be political for just a minute. If both sides could actually just sit down and talk about things instead of just throwing polemic at each other... I think society as a whole would be much better, especially American society. But that's just one man's opinion. Moving on with the email, uh, Luke says, Secondly, as far as John as the quote-unquote angry, angry black man, I think this was during the storyline when he was on another planet with the two factions fighting each other, and I think you made the reference that the writers were trying to write him as an angry black man, but that wasn't working. That's the only reference I can remember you calling anyone that term. And, yeah, that was kind of it. I didn't like the way that they were portraying John. In my reading of John, he has been developed as a very nuanced and intelligent character. A lot of times, probably the most intelligent character in the Green Lantern Corps. Far more than Guy, far more than Hal, especially. And the fact that they went back to the idea of he being the stereotypical what was in a lot of the comics in the 70s and 80s of if you had a black character he was always railing against the system and just not very nuanced very one dimensional and I didn't like the fact that they had returned to the idea that John was that one dimensional character he's not and I don't like it when he's portrayed that way who this is kind of a rant-filled email. (laughs) Sorry about that. Back to the email. Uh, Luke says, sounds like a tempest in a teapot to me, and I definitely have to agree with you. Then he finishes up with, but remember this, every iTunes review you get helps the show, positive or negative. So, there you go. 
Keep up the good work on the show, and looking forward to hearing more about Guy and Company, Luke. Thank you, Luke. Uh, excellent email, as always. If you don't know about Luke Giaconetti, he is the host of Earth Destruction Directive over the Two True Freaks website. It's a podcast about Godzilla, Gamera, and basically all sorts of daikaiju, which are Japanese giant monsters. He also covers, I think you call it tokusatsu, which is essentially what most people in America would associate the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers with. It's more than that. There's Kamen Rider and all this stuff. If you like any of that kind of stuff, big guys, or I guess guys in monster suits beating the crap out of each other, Earth Destruction Directive is the podcast for you. Also, Luke is one of the co-hosts, with me on it, of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which uh, by now, I think our Halloween episode should be coming out. I have no idea what people are putting out for the Halloween episode, but last year's was a really good uh, collection of stories from Luke, Chris, and the Hair Metal Hero, and this year uh, I'm probably pretty certain it's going to be even better. So definitely check out the uh, Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and also check out Luke's other podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. Plus, he's got a couple of blogs. Uh, I can't remember them right now. I think El Chacon's uh, Comic Bunker and Being Carter Hall, a Hawkman podcast. Yeah, there you go. So thanks again, Luke, for writing in. I appreciate it. Uh, I will be chatting with you soon, because uh, on the vault, not only are we doing Halloween-centered stuff, we're starting to get into Italian horror, which is pretty creepy, I've got to say. And our next email comes from Scott Davis, and his letter is entitled, New Listener from Canada. Oh, wow. I actually have... This is totally awesome. I love getting letters from people outside of the United States. Canada. This is so cool. Thank you, Scott, for writing. Uh, You know, I just... I really love the fact that I'm actually getting this silly little podcast about Green Lantern out to the entire world, and I'm actually getting responses from different places in the world. So, hello, Canadian citizens. Nice to have you on the show. The the email starts out, Hi, Sean. I just tried posting on your website the promo thread, but I'm not sure if it's showing up. Yeah, I, I think I got that finally fixed. Uh, I have to actually go to the website and moderate it. So, it, it's up there now. Uh, Scott continues, Coincidentally, I'm trying to go back and collect the Green Lantern issues starting in 1990. I'm a Green Lantern newbie because I've only been reading Green Lantern comics for just over a year. I got started on Rebirth about a year ago, and I've been hooked on Green Lantern since. Yeah, Rebirth was a good place to start out. It uh, basically fleshed out all the Earth-based lanterns and set up the ongoing storyline that Jeff John was doing. Unfortunately, it kind of went out of hand when it got to the whole various ring cores and uh, I won't go into it. Scott continues, but I've already purchased a bunch of the 90s Green Lantern starting with issue number one also. I look forward to following along with your podcast because it's always nice to listen to a Green Lantern expert like yourself help me through the issues. Uh, hate to disappoint you, Scott. I'm pretty far from a Green Lantern expert, but I try my best. <laughs> Anyhow, Scott finishes up with your new listener from the Great White North, Scott. Well, Scott, thank you for being our first Canadian listener to write in. I'm glad to have you and pretty much anyone around the world listening to this podcast. It's completely 
completely and totally awesome. But that does it for emails. Let's go ahead and switch on over to the review of Green Lantern number 38. Green Lantern number 38 has a cover date of April 1993 and a release date of February 23, 1993. Its cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, sorry for the extra 10 cents, and 50p UK. Title was Life Decisions. Writer here was Gerard Jones, penciler M.D. Bright, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Berganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Racing through the sky, Green Lantern Hal Jordan dodges blasts from the ray gun of Adam Strange as he cradles the Ranian's hero's daughter in his arm. Adam realizes that Geol is possessed in some way, as if someone is controlling his mind, but his monologuing gets, gets him a ring blast for his troubles. Trying to escape with Adam's daughter, Hal flies off but is taken down by a blast of yellow energy fired by the Ronian forces. Both Hal and the infant Aaliyah plummet to the ground, but before Adam can catch the infant girl, she falls into a purple portal and disappears. Wanting answers, Adam encases Green Lantern in a yellow force field as he awakens. Hal tells Adam that he has no recollection of how he got here. In fact, the last thing he remembers is having breakfast with Barry Allen. Newly back from the dead, the newly back from the dead Flash. The two have talked about the prospect of Hal and Carol tying the knot. Right as Hal is being hit upon by every available f- female in the vicinity, including super hot alien former lover Aresia. Hal says he's not ready to have kids, but Barry wishes that he could have had a child to carry on for. Adam says he feels the same way, but since the death of his wife Al- Alana. His daughter Aaliyah has meant everything to him. Adam's mother-in-law demands that Hal tell her what happened to her granddaughter, and Hal goes all Linda Blair and starts yelling about the U-Mind until he's zapped back into consciousness by the laser shield. Being told by Adam about what he said, Hal remembers that after he and Barry said their goodbyes, he went to talk with Carol about the marriage proposal, but ran into Ann Coulter wannabe Olivia Reynolds. Sporting the trampiest salesperson outfit ever, Olivia wants to hire Hal to fly her out to meet someone who wants to finance the line of Green Lantern action figures she is trying to sell. However, the mere mention of Green Lantern makes Olivia go all Reagan McNeil on Hal, as the U-Mine takes over and causes Hal to take the plane into a nosedive. Fearing that this might be like the time in Vegas where he accidentally killed a hooker and had to bury her in the desert, Hal pleads for Adam to let him go after Olivia. Adam says no dice until Hal tells him why his daughter was sucked into a purple portal. Hal thinks that the Cordians have her, and with that, the two heroes are off to the Antimatter Universe. Of course, since Hal used to go to the Antimatter Universe every Tuesday in the pre-crisis era, Hal is able to reopen the portal Aaliyah went through. But just as they head in, they're attacked by a giant alien interdimensional guard dog. Using some Star Trek The Next Generation technobabble, the duo blow up the doggy real good and head to the Cordian home. Meeting little resistance, Hal notices the area was blasted with energy from the Ergono, a Cordian weapon powered by Olivia's U-Mind. But just as Adam asks how the Ergono relates to his abducted daughter, Hal flips out again and Adam blasts him, freeing him from the Langland mind control. Meanwhile, some time has passed and Hal and Adam are cooking up some Gordian squab. Well, Adam is cooking up the squab, while Hal is sitting out with his hands tied behind him. Saying that he feels free of the control of the Leglands, 
Hal speculates on what the U-Mind actually is, relating it to the instincts of a pilot or the creativity of an artist. Too certain of what they need to do, Hal and Adam head off toward the capital city of the Weaponers. As they approach, they witness chaos as the Weaponers are fighting amongst themselves. Looking for answers, Hal grabs the Chief Weaponer and demands he tell them what's going on. The Chief Weaponer says that their defeat by Guy Gardner, Ray, removed the fear that the Weaponers had over the populace, resulting in an uprising. An uprising led by none other than Olivia Reynolds, who now proclaims herself Queen of Quard. Okay, I don't know what the hell happened last issue, number 37, but I'm glad that the book is back on track. We're dealing with plot lines that were seeded a few months ago, even some storylines that were written decades ago, dealing with the U-Mind and the Leglands and all that. The artwork is back to its standard of being totally awesome, with M.D. Bright doing just a bang-up job of capturing the sort of Buck Rogers or even Flash Gordon sci-fi feel of Adam Strange. Really great work, and I'm glad we're not, we have the issue 37, hopefully deep in the past now. But let's go ahead and look at the notes for the issue. As for the cover, like I said before, Andy Bright really does a great job at capturing the sort of retro sci-fi look of Adam Strange here. Although this time around, Olivia Reynolds doesn't look as much like Ann Coulter as she did in the first issue that we saw, or back in, what, issue number... I think it's 29 it is. Yeah, 29. Uh, it could also be that she's basically in a, these sort of short shorts and a push-up bra on her. Hair's a lot more teased and has got more of a reddish tint to it, so I guess they're trying to retroactively go back in the past and make sure that Olivia Reynolds doesn't look like Ann Coulter to avoid lawsuits. Page one, it's a really nice decision here. The first panel, uh, the first splash here on page one is basically a starting out the story in progress. You have no idea why Hal is on Ron, why Adam Strange is shooting at him, and why he's carrying Adam Strange's kit. It's a great way to kind of get you started off on the issue with this sort of what the heck's going on feel. I like that in this book. Moving ahead on page four, panel three, the uh, mother-in-law character says that this story is placing, taking place on Ranagar, which is a floating city above the surface of Ran. Now, I'm not certain. I know the Ran-Thanagar War happened recently in DC history, I think just prior to the New 52 reboot. I'm wondering if this is any way related to Thanagar, the home of the Hawks, which the war was going on with or if that was something that happened later. Uh, I know Ran and Thanagar have a sort of combative history. If anyone 
Luke probably, uh, has an idea of what's going on here, write in and let me know about it. I'm always willing to get more information about this stuff. Page 6, we see Hal Jordan the pimp, basically, and all the ladies can't seem to get enough of him. We've got the waitress from the previous issues and some other lady who seems to uh, be interested in Hal's airport or airplane business. And then, of course, we've got Aresia wearing a sort of uh, skimpy halter top. Well, not halter top, but midriff cutoff shirt. Yeah, Hal gets all the ladies. And as Michael Bradley has said, he's essentially got two modes, jerk or horniest man alive. So I guess you can imagine what mode he's in right now. Page 7, it's really cool that we get Hal and Barry talking about their lives. The unfortunate thing is, once you realize who Barry actually is, it kind of messes with the whole situation. But it is really nice that they kept the idea that Barry was back, going through the myriad other books, aside from actually just the Flash title. So, neat that they're trying to incorporate him into the other books in the DC Universe. Page 8, panel 3, is Hal's in the force field again. He gets possessed by the U-Mind. <sighs> Great. Uh, you know, maybe this is just some Silver Age stuff that I'm really not as interested in. Give me talking monkeys and big-headed freaks, and I'm a happy camper. This whole U-Mind thing just isn't for me. Then on page 9, panel 6, we get reintroduced to Olivia Reynolds, perhaps the world's sluttiest saleswoman, uh, she's here in basically a midriff shirt, a green uh, vest, and really, really short, uh, I guess I guess you'd call them daisy toques, plus thigh-high leather boots. So, there you go. She's trying to sell stuff, and you would kind of expect that it's not supposed to be children's toys. You might think other types of toys, but I'm not going to mention that. Page 10, Olivia Minson mentions this mysterious billionaire recluse who wants to buy the rights to the dolls. Hmm. Strange millionaire or billionaire recluse who likes to play with dolls? Could she be talking about Todd McFarlane? No, probably not. Page 12, panel 1. I wanted to address the shirt, or at least what is on Olivia's shirt, to the listeners. She's wearing a shirt that says Catherine did it. Now, I didn't exactly know what this was, but I had an idea. It basically goes back to the 1992 movie uh, Basic Instinct, directed by Paul Verhoeven and written by the ultra-misogynistic Joe Esterhaus. Now, what went on during the movie was there was a lot of I think gay groups in San Francisco who were protesting the fact that the killer in the movie was a lesbian. So in order to protest this fact, this group printed up shirts telling the ending in the movie, which was basically that Catherine did it, hopefully spoiling the movie for you. Essentially, the movie was pretty much spoiled by the horrible writing of Joe Westerhouse and... The only reason Basic Instinct is interesting in any way, shape, or form is because Sharon Stone decided to cross and uncross her legs at a particular moment. Nice beaver. Thank you. I just had it stuffed. Let me help you with that. Jumping ahead on page 16, for some reason it looks like the art took a sort of 
down drop in quality. I mean, it's not that it's bad, it just doesn't look as good as the previous or the pages afterwards. Maybe the inking is a bit off, maybe it was just a bit rushed, but the artwork looks a little less than stellar. Just a comment. And then finally, on page 22, say what you will, a barbarian version of Ann Coulter, that'd be pretty hot. And what we've got here is a pretty hot version of Olivia Reynolds with her cut-off shirt and sword and scabbard on one leg and very large gun on the other leg and metal things on her boots and a giant flowing cape holding the baby in one arm pointing towards the hero saying that she's the queen of Quard. It's a dynamic look and yeah, a, a good look for Ann Coulter, uh, Olivia Reynolds. Sorry, I keep moving that. Anyhow, that uh, finishes up my notes for Green Lantern. Let's go ahead and put in a couple of promos here for some excellent podcasts, and then when we get back, we'll take a look and see what's happening with Guy Gardner. I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libson.com. See ya. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we're back. And I'm going to let it be known right now, I actually chose Dave Walker's promo to be played on the podcast long before I chose the uh, underlying soundtrack for the last episode, or last part of the episode. So, you're getting your fill of uh, Queen Awesomeness, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, moving from 
queen to who I would consider the king. Hail to the king, baby. Let's go take a look at Guy Gardner number seven, which was cover dated April 1993 with a release date on March March 2nd, 1993. Cover price, again, was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 60 pence UK. Title this time around was Mexicali Gold. Plotter was Gerard Jones, scripter Will Jacobs, penciler Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Being the Cleopatra Jones of this comic, Sally grabs Jocasta's arm and hip-tosses the boob-knife-wielding warrior as Guy thrills to his paramour's prowess. Seeing that he needs to take out Goldface's goons before Hal can, Guy shoulder-rams Jocasta as Repo tries to get the ring to work. Old West Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out until Piston tackles our hero, subduing him so he can be taken for Goldface and made to show how the ring works. Meanwhile, Hal and Tom, Piveis, Kalmaku, have finished their espionage mission and now have the whereabouts of Goldface. Wanting to get a little info on what they'll be up against, Hal contacts the Guardians to ask about the aliens who've been helping Goldface. The Guardians describe Repo, Jocasta, and Piston, and describes their abilities as well, which gives Hal some ideas of how to take them out. Unfortunately, Hal is too busy thinking about how he can beat Guy to the punch that he misses the squad of goons who open fire on Tom and Hal. Knocking them away with a ring construct baseball bat, Hal goes back to Montlocking about his plan of attack. At the same time, Guy Gardner is proposing a plan to Goldface. Rather than allowing them to take his ring, he will work for Goldface himself. Repo thinks that's a bad idea, as he's finally been able to ring up a brass knuckles construct and pop Guy in the kisser. Hoping that the ring can be controlled from a distance like the Green Lantern rings, Guy uses his force of will to dissipate Repo's attack. Saying that the only chance Goldface has is to let him use the ring, Guy presses it at his advantage as Piston presses a huge machine over his head. Steamed by the simple synthoid's stupidity, Goldface tells him to put the ionizer down as Guy tries to work out a plan using the machine, but his thoughts are interrupted by a ring blast from Jocasta. Reeling from the attack, Guy musters all of his will to stop Jocasta ramming a ring construct knife into him. He barely manages to deflect it when Goldface takes the ring for himself and begins his spiel about being the strongest mind and his plans for conquering the planet and such. He fires a beam at Guy's head, but our hero musters all his will and stops the blast mere inches from hitting it. Realizing that they do need Guy to use the ring, Goldface asks for an act of trust. Kill Sally with his bare hands. Thinking to himself that he has only one last chance, Guy slowly wraps his hands around the unconscious Sally's throat. Outside, Hal and Tom are taking out Goldface's guards with a little help from a tree trunk. Breaking in, Tom again asks why Hal is taking this so personally. Hal explains he doesn't like Guy's methods because they were too much like his. But right now, Hal is focusing all his attention on creating a little diversion. Back with Guy, Repo examines the body of Sally and finds no pulse. Satisfied that Guy is true to his word, Goldface hands him the ring, but before he can grab it away, a construct image of Green Lantern appears, and the proverbial sh** hits the fan. Piston charges at Guy and Fighty McFightenstein, co- again copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, or it's reserved, starts back up. Guy grumbles that if he knew Hal was going to make the scene, he would have teleported Sally away instead of putting her in suspended animation. Moving towards the machine Piston was powerlifting earlier, Guy draws Goldface's fire and the ring vein blasts the machine, trapping the villains in the shower of molten gold. Crisis averted, 
guy brings Sally out of suspended animation as he tells a gobsmacked Hal that he's taking credit for the gang's capture and he will personally see them in court. An American court. And with that, Guy flies away with Sally and the villains in tow, as Tom and Hal have to admit that Guy used his brains as well as his fist. Flying away, Sally asks Guy why he looks so sad when he beat the Green Lantern on his own terms. Guy replies that he's glad he won, but next time, he wants it to be on his terms. Is it ever gonna be enough? Is it ever gonna be enough? Okay, again, I'm probably gonna show my bias here, but why, why, why is this not in trade? I mean, I'm not saying that it's the best thing since The Dark Knight Returns. I'm not saying it's Watchmen. I'm not even saying it's, like, Blackest Night. But it is an excellent story and definitely deserves at least a simple trade paperback. By any means, it's as good as Emerald Dawn. And maybe it's just my bias towards Guy Gardner, but I'm trying to take this objectively and I'm trying to see why this wouldn't be a good enough story for DC to compile. It just is really upsetting that the Green Lantern books from this time period are completely overlooked, and the Green Lantern books of the Jeff Johns era are revered as some of the greatest writing ever. And I'm not saying that it's not good writing, but this stuff here isn't to be overlooked. It's disappointing, but I deal with it on a daily basis. But to get over my disappointment, I'm going to take a look at notes for this issue, and sadly, disappointment kind of comes around on the cover. I mean... This isn't the best cover. Uh, the background's just a sort of indistinct maroon, and Repo and Jocasta look kind of off. And again, like a lot of covers, what's happening on it, which is Goldface using the ring to create a couple of ring construct fists to stra- throttle Guy, doesn't happen anywhere in the book. It's the kind of cover that belies the material within. Then opening up on page one, Sally proves that she is just totally badass as she basically grabs Jocasta's arm and shoulder rolls her. It's an awesome shot, but I've got to wonder what the heck happened to Piston. I mean, Guy didn't blast him with the ring because Repo had him, and Piston's lying there in the dirt like he just fell over or something. I mean, did he just trip and fall? Is he that incompetent of a villain? I guess maybe something was missed between books? Who knows? Page 3, panel 5, as Guy is fighting Jocasta, he mentioned that the move that he used to take Jocasta down, which is sort of a kick where he jumped over a sort of pommel horse, or basically a a horse hitching post, was uh, taught to him by uh, General Glory. I like this because it shows that Guy is a capable fighter, and he's able to be a hero even if he doesn't wield the ring. I like the fact that they're painting Guy as someone that's more nuanced than just a big bully with the most powerful weapon in the DC universe. Page 5, panels 2 and 3, we get a couple of panels of Guy thinking to himself, saying, you deserve this, Gardner, for letting this alien weasel swipe your ring. It's another example of Guy knowing that he let his ego get the best of him, and realizing that he failed in this aspect. I don't think this is something that you would find in a sort of over-the-top, brain-dead anti-hero 
the likes of which the 90s was replete with. Guy actually knows that he did something wrong and is willing to admit his mistakes, which is something that other anti-heroes don't seem to want to do. Page 8 is Hal and Tom land on the island where Goldface is stationed. Uh, he's so entrenched in his idea and intent on his plan to beat Guy that he completely misses the group of armed guards that are about ready to fire on him. Probably about ready to fire on him with gold-jacketed rounds, which would have ripped through his uh, Green Lantern shielding and basically done away with him. Hal's obsessed at beating Guy, and we're going to find out what the reason is here in a few. Page 9, panel 5. Uh, it's a nice sort of callback to issue 3 of the Green Lantern series, where Hal was able to disarm the, the rednecks who had stolen his ring simply by using his will to have their constructs not work. Since he was the actual ring wielder, he was able to control what the ring did. It's the same thing that's happening for Guy here, and I, I like the continuity between this. Even though you would think the Sinestro ring, the yellow ring, might be differently made and might have a different abilities and whatever, it's nice that they kind of make the call back to this and allow the person who's the actual wielder of it to have control over it, even if it gets on someone else's hand. Page 11, panels 2 and 3, we get more of Guy's self-doubt as he says to himself, Ionizer, hmm, I wish I knew what that means. Damn, I bet Jordan would know all about it. He'd probably have gold face licked in his, in his mind right now. Jerk. Again, it's another example of Guy's self-doubt that's kind of brought upon by, well, the supposed awesomeness of Hal Jordan and Guy having to live in that shadow. Page 13, we get some really great artwork here from Joe Staten as he's showing the effort that Guy's using to try and will the ring not to work as Goldface tries to shoot him in the face with the beam. This really goes to the point that Guy is, as Edward does have, a strong power of will as Hal does. Especially because all Hal had to do was take down a couple of drunk rednecks, while Guy is having to take out a supervillain. So, I think that says a little bit for him. Then on page 14, panel 6, as Guy is choking Sally, he's thinking to himself that he has one chance. So Guy is actually brewing a plan in his mind, and it's actually a pretty clever one. Putting Sally in suspended animation to an order in order to try and fool the villains into thinking she's dead was pretty clever, and Guy pulled it off without help from anyone but himself. Says something about his character, and says something about him being just more than a brain-dead bruiser. Page 16, panels 5 and 6, we get the revelation of why Hal is actually doing this, and I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh... Tom says to him, uh, Hal, isn't this getting a little too personal? Hal replies, Personal? Are you suggesting that I would allow my personal feelings toward Gardner to interfere with my duties to the core? Tom looks at him and says, Well? And Hal replies, Well, yes, it is personal. Guy Gardner symbolizes everything I hate about today's new heroes. He's arrogant, egotistical, using fists first and brains later. In short, is everything that I was at different times in my life, and I triumphed. I can't let him win. So basically, Hal sees in Guy exactly what he was before he became this mature superhero. And for some reason, it bugs Hal 
that Guy is actually succeeding using the things that he used to feel were immature, egotistical, and arrogant. It basically puts forth that Guy is pretty much Hal, only a younger version of him. And for whatever reason, Hal can't get over the fact that Guy probably could be as good a Green Lantern as he is. And I think that is the one motivating factor, the one thing that's eating at him. Page 19, panel 1, this is a pretty brutal page. Uh, as on this page, Guy gets a, a dagger thrown into his shoulder, his upper arm, by Jocasta. And not that Guy hasn't had, you know, big shards of glass, you know, sticking out of his body and been okay. But later on the page, on panel 4, uh, how, or not sorry, how Guy basically does a flip over Jocasta and pounds her head into the ground. So the book is giving equal time to violence against men and women in it. Then on page 20 is Guy blows up the ionizer and the molten gold sprays all over Jocasta and Repo and Pista, or Jocasta, Repo and Goldface. All I can think of is the, well, the final scene of Danger Diabolique, which was a Sadly, it was the very final Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. God, I missed that show. Then on page 21, panel 1, Guy says, Well, 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 look who just captured the Goldface mob. And Hal Jordan says, Just dumb luck, Gardner. I'd whipped up a plan that would have nabbed Goldface with no help from you at all. Hmm. Hey, how? How are those grapes there? Are, are they kind of sour? Hmm. That, that, they sound kind of sour, Hal. I wonder why. And then finally on page 22, panel 2, as Guy's flying off with Sally and the uh, villains in a ring construct bubble, Tom says to Hal that he's right, you know. He used some brains as well as his fist. And you can just tell that Hal is completely eaten up by the fact that Guy beat him at his own game. And I feel great about it. But... That's the end of my notes for this issue. Let's go ahead and turn around in the book and see what kind of ads they had for the 1990s comic book buying audience. And first off on the inside cover, we get Alien Abduction, November 5th, 1975. 5.49 p.m., White Mountains, northeastern Arizona. As we see a beam of light, you know, lifting a, uh, well, sort of 70s-looking guy into the air. And it's the, uh, promo poster for Fire in the Sky, based on a true story, and oddly enough, none of the words are in quotation marks, so you're led to believe that this alien abduction is actually supposed to be true. Uh, it had some pretty good people in it, Ro uh, Robert Patrick, D.B. Sweeney, uh, Peter Berg, and James Garner were in it. Uh, I think the movie is most fondly, or, well, maybe not fondly, most remembered for its... Uh, abduction sequence where you get the idea that D.B. Sweeney, who was abducted, had some probing gone on. Not the pleasant kind, either. Then a few pages in, we get One Kid's Fantasy, One Cop's Nightmare. Burt Reynolds and uh, the little rugrat Norman D. Golden in the <sighs> movie Cop and a Half. Not Burt Reynolds' finest moment. Probably better than Spokey and the Bandit 3, but he was only in that movie for a minute. Then on the next page, you get Arkham's Mad Men are free. 
Gotham's in chaos. Batman is exhausted. The Mad Hatter strikes. But he is only the first. The Joker, Two-Face, and their like are still out there, and so is Bane. And we get the uh, first issue, or the promo for the first issue of Nightfall. And it looks like a sort of stylized Kelly Jones cover with Batman taking down... uh, like a thug as well as the Riddler, and it gives all the comics that are going to be in it. If you haven't read Nightfall, I definitely recommend that you go pick it up, and if you had read Nightfall, go and check out the back issues, the back episodes of Hey Kids Comics. They do an awesome job covering not only Nightfall, but Night Quest and Night's End as well. Hey Kids Comics is a great show to listen to. Definitely go check it out. A few pages in, we get Sunsoft DC Superhero Sweepstakes, where you can cut out an entry form and send it into Sunsoft, and maybe they will paint your face or draw your face into an image in one of their video games. Or one of the comics that goes to their video games. And since their video games were Revenge of the Joker and Superman 16-bit, maybe this wasn't something that you'd want to have your face associated with. And the next page has a brother from another planet and a young woman with a serious attitude. Together, they'll show the world what it means to be a hero. It's Icon, a new ongoing series from Milestone. And again, the Milestone comics, aside from Static, I really don't have any knowledge of. But it's got uh, cover art from Dennis Cowan and Jimmy Palmiotti, so there's a couple of big names there. Later into the book, we get the uh, typical DC subscription page, which still isn't fronting Superman as one of the heroes. We've got the uh, Tim Drake Robin, Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, and Green Arrow, but no Superman. Next page is the hodgepodge page. Again, all the regular stuff, but underneath it is uh, when you... Sorry, an ad for when your planet just isn't safe anymore, protecting the galaxy monthly. It's the Dark Stars which I guess were an offshoot of the Green Lantern Corps. I never really read Dark Stars, but coming up here in a few issues, there will be a story called Trinity, which actually deals not with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, but with the Green Lantern Corps, the Dark Stars, and Legion, which, if I recall, were three different teams of sort of space-faring police forces, for lack of a better term. As far as I remember, the Dark Stars were formed by, I think, an offshoot of the Guardians of the Universe, and I do recall that Donna Troy, who was formerly Wonder Girl, and eventually Jon Stewart were members of the uh, Dark Star Star Corps, so there's a little bit of information I have about them. Next page, we get an ad for News Time from Metropolis to the World, and it's an image of Superman's cape... uh, probably streaming from the flagpole after, well, in that image from Superman 75, where you see Lois cradling the body of Superman, and it's got a uh, quote from Dan Rather on there saying, we can no longer say, let Superman do it. The quest for truth and justice must become our quest, not singly as vigilantes, but together as the great people Superman hoped we would be. So, it was a nice sort of advertisement for a faux news magazine that was chronicling the death of Superman at the time. Again, check back with uh, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor over at From Crisis to Crisis for more information about the death and return of Superman. The next page, we have the DC Universe page, which uh, is promoting the uh, Supergirl and Team Luthor book, which I can't remember what Jeffrey and Michael had to say about it. I 
don't know if it was 100% positive. And then we've got a sort of mystery uh, picture down at the bottom with a big question mark saying, the real deal, or is he? And we get this image of this white background character with a large S on his chest. It looks like a sort of visor over his eyes. And I guess we're led to believe that this might be the return of Superman. So we'll have to keep our eyes open and see what's going on with this character. Who knows? Guy Talk again has Guy Gardner answering letter writers' letters in his own well-reasoned and nuanced fashion. Then on the back inside cover, we've got Make Your Own, where you can basically use the Sega system, the Sega Master System, or I guess it'd be called the Sega Genesis, and hook up the Sega CD system to it and edit your own videos with CNC Music Factory and Criss Cross. Yes, either the band that made you want to sweat or the little kids with the backwards pants that commanded you to jump. It's sad what we thought entertainment was for video games in the days. But then finally, on the back outside cover, we get It's a KO, Jam at Home, Feel the Heat, and Bone Crunching. And no, it's not an advertisement for the Swedish Erotica line of video games. It's an advertisement for the uh, sports video games dedicated to the Sega Genesis, being uh, George Foreman's KO Boxing, uh, NBA All-Star Challenge, Roger Clemens MVP Baseball, and Super Empire, Super High Impact Football. All pretty fun games, all for the Sega Genesis, all pretty much forgotten as soon as Madden came out. But that does it for the issue, that does it for the ads. Uh, I hope you come back next week, because next week we're going to have a couple of really great issues with the conclusion of the Adam Strange storyline, where we find out what the heck is going on with Ann Coulter, or Olivia Reynolds, sorry. And then a special guest appears in the Guy Gardner comic, when you never would have fragging expected to show up. Get the hint? Of course you do. But that's it for this week. So please, everyone, come back next Friday for another great episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. Until then, have a good week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justinoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too. And as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly of fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and feel free to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next show. 
you can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greedland podcast. The opening music for today's show was Destination Unknown, covered by the Smashing Pumpkins off their album Rarities and B-Sides. Now, you can go download the song or download all the songs on Rarities on B-Sides at Amazon.com. And a great way to get to Amazon.com is by going through the link at 2TrueFreaks.Lipson.com. Every time you click the link at the banner at the top of the page of 2TrueFreaks, and then subsequently make a purchase at Amazon.com, you'll be making sure that fine quality DeMonsecore podcasts stay on the air. On the internet.